as listening to the reading of God's Word from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning that we might understand who Jesus is more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's Palm Sunday today. We're taking a break from our ongoing series in the life of David to talk about a different king, a greater king, David's son, Jesus. And this is a well-known story. It's got a cute donkey and his mama in it. It's also really packed with a lot of symbolism that I hope to uh, unpack at least a little bit this morning. Uh, But the main point of of it is to present us with Jesus as a humble king. So we're going to see three points from our passage this morning. Point number one, Jesus is a king. Jesus is a king. Point number two, Jesus' kingship demands our loyalty. Jesus' kingship demands our loyalty. And number three, Jesus is a humble king. Jesus is a humble king. So our first point, Jesus is a king. That's made clear already from the quote from Zechariah in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. But there's actually a lot more royal symbolism than that also going on in this passage. But we need to kind of cross a bit of a cultural gap if we're going to appreciate it. First off, a donkey is fine royal transportation. I I think this is a bit of a surprise for us maybe. You know, we think of horses as cool and noble and maybe donkeys, uh, we think of them a little less. Maybe they're for carrying the packs But this couldn't be farther from how ancient people saw donkeys. Um, For one thing, a donkey has a much smoother gait than a horse. It's just a much more comfortable ride, riding in style. There's actually plenty of examples of kings riding donkeys in the Bible. When David flees from Absalom, one of his subjects shows his loyalty by bringing donkeys for the king's household to ride on. 
And when Solomon rides to be crowned king himself, what does he ride on? He rides on a mule. Actually, it's described as King David's own mule. It's a royal form of transport. So Jesus may be sending a message with his choice of a donkey, and even more so with a young donkey, a colt. His audience, many of them would have been aware of this prophecy from Zechariah that the king is going to come riding on a colt. They might also have thought about a slightly more enigmatic prophecy from Genesis 49 that talks about a ruler who's going to come from Judah and also associates him with a colt. And Matthew alone among the gospel writers, by the way, tells us that the colt's mother comes along for the ride. Maybe this is to encourage the young foal who might be nervous about carrying somebody for the first time. And, you know, I can just imagine the kinds of cute children's books that you could make about, you know, the little donkey who's, who's scared about and needs his mom to come with him. But maybe it's also just to make sure that nobody misses the point. Nobody misses the connection to the prophecy. You know, having the mother and the child right there next to each other really brings out the force of it. So there's the symbolism of the donkey, which is royal symbolism. Another symbolism in the text is the people throwing their cloaks beneath Jesus, either the disciples spreading them on the donkey or the people throwing them on the road. Now, now what's all that about? It's going to get a bunch of people's cloaks dirty, isn't it? Well, if you check out the story of Jehu in 2 Kings 9, which I encourage you to, it's a great story, um, you see his supporters placing their garments under him when they proclaim him king. So don't miss the political significance of that. This is how you treat a king. You place your garments under him. Then we have the branches. John tells us that they're palms, and that's why we call it Palm Sunday. And, um, well, I put a meme on my Twitter last yesterday about whether I would be able to explain this. I think it's a little complicated, but you guys do want to know where the palms come from in Palm Sunday, right? Okay, okay, well, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, so here we go. The first thing that will come to mind if you have the, keep the Old Testament in mind, is this feast called the Feast of Booths, or sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of the three annual feasts where the people would come to Jerusalem every year. Uh, and it, to me, it sounds like the most fun one. You build a booth and you camp outside, and you get to wave plants, in, including palms, around. You know, it sounds like a lot of fun. It's a time that reminded Israel of their time in the Exodus, in the wilderness, spent camping out with God. There's just a problem, though, which is that the Feast of Booths comes six months after Passover, which is when Jesus enters Jerusalem. So this can't really be the Feast of Booths. It's six months off. Okay, so we need to do a little more digging. Well, the key, I think, comes from the stories that surround Hanukkah which we don't talk much about Hanukkah because it happens between the end of our Old Testament and the beginning of our New Testament, but it's mentioned a couple times in the New Testament, so we might as well know what, what happens during Hanukkah. And uh, the key events are that 
a, a, a series of leaders re- called the Maccabees rise up to deliver Israel from these uh, a, a, a oppression by the Seleucid Greek Empire. So it's a, it's a story about how the Maccabees deliver them. And there's a couple of times in the story of Hanukkah, in the stories that have come down to us, where the people celebrate something like the Feast of Booths, but at a different time. And each of those stories involves a leader, one of the Maccabees, driving the Gentiles out of Jerusalem and taking back the city. And they celebrate kind of a mini Feast of Booths with palms and everything to celebrate the capture of the city. Okay. Now, I think with that in mind, you can see the political significance of the palm branches as well. Maybe the kind of thing that would make, say, the Romans a little nervous. So there's a royal element there as well. You know, Jesus maybe is going to be like one of these leaders who's going to kick the Romans out, maybe. Um, Certainly, it's connected with the idea of a godly leader. The last royal element we need to talk about is this song, paraphrased from Psalm 118. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. By the way, this psalm was traditionally sung by the people at the Feast of Booths. Uh, in fact, this verse is one of the places where you're, the Mishnah says you're supposed to wave your palm fronds. So, you know, wave them if you got them, I guess. Um, Hosanna, what does that mean? It's, it's an imperative directed to God that means save, calling upon God to save his people. And here it's, it's linked with this title, the Son of David. All through the Old Testament, God had promised that there would be a descendant of David, the Messiah, who would come and deliver his people. And now the crowd is saying, this is the guy. Here's the Son of David. Probably, by the way, not a coincidence that elsewhere in this same psalm, Psalm 118, there's mention of God driving back the nations and delivering his people. I think possibly also in the minds of the crowd. And this is very important because if you read the Gospels, and especially the, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, you know that Jesus has worked pretty hard to keep his identity as the Messiah under wraps. For a long time. So earlier in Matthew, in chapter 9, there are a couple of blind men who cry out to Jesus and call him the son of David. And he heals them of blindness, but then he tells them, don't tell anyone. Uh, Why is Jesus doing this? Because it's not the right time yet for him to reveal his identity as the son of David. But now it is. It's finally the right time. Jesus is going public. I wonder if you could feel some of that same excitement as the crowd. You know, can you put yourself in their sandals? Their cry, Hosanna, save! It comes from a place of desperate trouble. You know, they recognize that not all is right. Things haven't been right for a long time. It's been years under the Roman yoke, and there's oppression, darkness, and despair everywhere. They know that they need to be saved. They need an act of God himself. And now here, finally, is the promised king. 
the one the prophets promised would put all things right. Their hope has not been in vain. Finally, a leader is coming to them who can save them. Okay, so that's our first point. Jesus is a king. Second point, Jesus' kingship demands our loyalty. Kings are inherently polarizing figures, aren't they? You know, there can only be one king in the kingdom. So there's only two responses you can have when you're presented with a king. You can either pledge your fealty to him, or you can oppose him and support another claimant to the throne. And our passage actually opens with Jesus issuing such a call for obedience. He sends out the disciples to go fetch the donkeys. He tells them to stroll into the town, untie the donkeys, and come back. I don't think I would have wanted to be one of the disciples who got this assignment. Uh, feels a little sketchy, a little awkward, you know, just walking up to someone's sweet ride and like hot wiring it. And, you know, then they come out and say, uh, uh, what are you doing uh, exactly? Uh, and, but they say what Jesus tells them to say. The Lord has need of it. Now, there are some commentators who want to assure us that Jesus has arranged all of this in advance. After all, it would be a kind of weird thing to just do, and uh, when has Jesus ever done anything weird? Well, quite a bit, actually. Um, I don't know. I think the point of the passage maybe pushes us in a different direction. Uh, Jesus issues a sovereign command, which he can only do because of his royal authority. The Lord has need of it. Who is the Lord, by the way? Is that a reference to God or a reference to Jesus? Yes. Jesus issues his command with all the kingly authority of God himself. And the owners of the donkey recognize this authority. And loyalty to the king also shows up in the rest of the passage. Let's go back to the coats that are put under Jesus for a second. I mentioned that this happens in the story of Jehu as well. Um, well, where do coats show up in that story? Well, if you don't remember it, um, Jehu's rise to power is a coup. There's already a king, uh, and it's not Jehu. But God sends Elisha the prophet to anoint Jehu as king, Elisha comes to meet with Jehu privately. He anoints him with king, as king, and then he like runs away. He like gets out of Dodge, as God told him to do. Uh, and then the other army officers who work for the king Jehu would be replacing, by the way, they, they see Elisha run out, and they come, and they're like, uh, so, uh, hey, uh, bro, uh, couldn't help but notice like um, the man of God just booking it out of here? Like, what, anything you want to tell us? Like, anything, he'd say anything interesting? And, and Jehu says, nope. And they press him, and they're like, no, come on. That was a prophet. Like, what did he say to you? And he says, he tells them that he got anointed as king. And this is the moment in the story where they place their robes under him, they blow a trumpet, and they proclaim him as king. You see the significance of this act. They're joining his coup. They are transferring their loyalty from their old Lord to Jehu instead. And the same thing is happening with Jesus. 
First, the two disciples spreading their cloaks on the donkey, and the whole crowd throwing their cloaks in his path are pledging their loyalty to Jesus as king. It's a dramatic gesture that everything they own belongs to him. All of their belongings, they're they're literally placing their belongings under him as if to say that everything that they have will be at his service. What do you think Matthew wants for us to take from this uh, gospel passage today? What What do you think the Holy Spirit has to say to us in these words? You know, maybe he's pressing this question of loyalty upon us, asking us, have you, have I pledged our loyalty to Jesus? You know, there are ways of thinking about Jesus that kind of dodge this question. Uh, We can think of Jesus as just a wise spiritual teacher, like Kung Tzu, or the Buddha, or Marianne Williamson, or other people we could name. You can just sort of take on board the nice things they say, and maybe you can leave some of the other stuff if it doesn't sound so good to you. But if Jesus is a king, then we can't just find him interesting. We have to choose. Are we going to pledge our loyalty to him or not? Will we become citizens of his kingdom or will we resist it? Are we going to pledge all our resources, our wealth, our time, our gifting, our abilities to the calling that he has for us in the world? This is something to think about if you're exploring Christianity here this morning. If you're here to learn about Jesus, it's, importantly, it's important to take seriously the claims that he makes about himself. It's important to recognize that Jesus makes an audacious claim on your life and my life. Jesus will not be content just being one among many spiritual advisors in your life. He claims nothing less than to be the king God has sent to save you. Maybe the Spirit is calling you, even now, to pledge your loyalty to Him and become part of His kingdom. This is also something you need to hear if you've called yourself a Christian for a long time. You pledged your loyalty to Jesus a long time ago and joined His church. Because it's very easy for us, isn't it, to slip into forgetfulness of Jesus' kingdom. And maybe that's why when Jesus taught us to pray, he put right up near the beginning, your kingdom come, your will be done. Because we always need to be going back daily to the question of whether we're aligning ourselves with Jesus' kingdom. What might it look like if you sought to put all your resources at Jesus' disposal? If you brought everything that you had and put it under Jesus' feet? So that's our second point. Jesus' kingship demands loyalty. Our third point, Jesus is a humble king. We've seen that the crowd clearly understands that Jesus is king. They're on board with that. But what kind of king is Jesus going to be? Perhaps the people expect him to be a great leader, like King David was, or like Judah Maccabee was. Somebody who's here to rally them to arms and kick the Romans out. But if we pay close attention, 
we can see that Jesus has chosen a mode of transport which suggests otherwise. He comes riding on a donkey. Now, as we've said, this is a fine royal mode of transport. But you know what? It's not a great mount to ride into battle with. Remember Jehu and his coup attempt again? Do you know what he does right after this happens with the garments and him being made king? He gets in his chariot. And why does he get in his chariot? Because there's already a king and he needs to go take care of him. But Jesus doesn't come in a chariot. He doesn't come on a war horse. He comes on a donkey. And that's because he's coming in peace. This is actually something we can see if we look at the whole Zechariah 9 uh, passage, which Shirley read for us earlier, the one that Matthew quotes. Right after the verse Matthew quotes, it continues, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus does not come in war. He comes in peace. As the Zechariah 9 quote emphasizes, the king is coming humble. Or this, this word could also be translated meek or gentle. Jesus is going to save his people, but it won't be through warfare. He's going to save his people through meekness. You know, it's not like no conquering warrior has ever entered Jerusalem this way before. But they entered it in peace after their battles, in a peace that they had killed and conquered for. The strange thing about Jesus is he enters Jerusalem in meekness before he has fought his final battle. It's still ahead of him. Jesus' cross still lies in the future. But you see, this is because for Jesus, meekness and peace aren't the posture he assumes after victory. They're the posture he takes into the battle. Jesus is going to win by losing. He's going to triumph in defeat. He's going to save by giving up his life. And this posture of Jesus might not fit what the crowd expects of him. And we've seen that some of the symbolism of what they're doing suggests that maybe they're looking for a conquering hero who's going to kick out the Romans, but that's not how things are going to go. I mean, the events that follow in the gospel story also raise the question about just how dedicated this crowd really is to their pledge of loyalty to Jesus. After all, in a few days, we're going to see a crowd chanting, crucify him. Some commentators want to get the Palm Sunday crowd off the hook for this. They tell us that the crowd on Good Friday, you know, it's a different crowd, um, and they point out, rightly, I think, you know, Matthew seems to imply the crowd here coming with Jesus is a crowd of, of pilgrims uh, coming from elsewhere, whereas, you know, he, the people of Jerusalem in verse 10, they're more just disturbed by Jesus, and they, they ask, who is Jesus? So, I mean, yes, there's, there's a di different groups of people here. But fair as that point may be, it, it's not as if all the pilgrims have left the city by the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And I think Matthew uses the word crowd in a way that really makes the connection. Later on, uh, we find that the, the religious leaders, they want to arrest Jesus, but they're afraid of the crowds. And that really forces us to ask the question, what changes? 
What changes between the start of when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, when the religious leaders are afraid of the crowds, and later on, when they feel free to arrest him? Where are all these people who hailed Jesus as king just a few days later at his crucifixion? Either they're in the crowd calling for his death, or maybe like his disciples, they're staying away. Either way, we we have to question the depth of their pledge to loyalty. And this is important because of another part of Psalm 118 that this crowd does not sing, but Jesus quotes later on. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. This is the part of Jesus' mission that is really hard for his disciples to understand and must have been hard for the crowds as well. Jesus is going to have to be rejected. He's going to be rejected by his people before he can become the foundation for his people. His story is not first of all going to be one of strength and glory, but one of meekness unto death. This is good news for us today, friends, because despite our pledges of loyalty to Jesus, we often fail in our duty to the king. But Jesus did not fail. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. And because Jesus is a humble king, meek unto death, he is able to save. In our sin, we didn't just need a king who would fight for us or defend us from external threats. We need a king who would die for us, who would enter into the humiliation that our sins deserve in our place. We needed a humble king. We needed Jesus. This is good news for us to meditate on as we head towards Good Friday this Easter season. Jesus was rejected so that we could be brought in. Especially if you are somebody who knows the frailty and weakness of your own loyalty to the kingdom, there is great gospel comfort here. The coming of the kingdom is brought not ultimately by our loyalty, but by the loyalty of Jesus Christ, the humble king who came to die for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus as our humble king. We thank you for his obedience, even to the point of death. We pray that you would strengthen us in loyalty to Jesus and build us up in the grace that he has purchased for us by his death. In Jesus' name, amen.